It's time now for Illinois Innovators, where we spotlight the trending topics in research, technology, and entrepreneurship surrounding the Granger Engineering community at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Hello, and welcome to Illinois Innovators, the podcast of the Granger College of Engineering at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I'm Bill Bell. Today's guest is Velas Dar, president of the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation, a $1.5 billion global philanthropy advancing artificial intelligence and data solutions to create a thriving, equitable, and sustainable future for all. Velas is a technologist, lawyer, and human rights advocate, and a leading voice at the intersection of AI, technology, and social impact. He earned bioengineering and computer science degrees from the Granger College of Engineering and a JD from NYU and an MPA from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government along the way. Veloss has also been a leading contributor in the academic study of technology for good as the Harvard University Gleitzman Fellow on Social Change and a practitioner and resident on artificial intelligence at the Rockefeller Foundation's Bellagio Center in Italy. His work has been published in the Harvard Business Review, Nature, Stanford Social Innovation Review, The Hill, USA Today, and Project Syndicate on how academia, CEOs, government officials, and civil society leaders can build a better tech-enabled future. Veloss, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. I'm delighted to be here with you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Great, and I'm just gonna dive right in. So my first question, it turns out, is from right there in your bio that I just read. Um, it talks about advancing artificial intelligence and data solutions to create a thriving, equitable, and sustainable future for all. Uh, from, from my seat, I don't see a lot of foundations talking about AI, period, and I don't see a lot of tech companies talking about social impact in these ways. So it, it seems to be a fascinating sort of uncommon space that you're working in. So if you could lead off by telling us how the McGovern Foundation, how the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation arrived here and why it's important to be working in this space. Bill, thanks for having me. I'm so delighted to be with the Granger College of Engineering. Um, it's a place that was really important for me in my formation. And now, even as I look forward into the future, let me start by sharing my incredible optimism and enthusiasm for the future that lies before us. Artificial intelligence, data science, these tools are transforming almost every element of the human experience. And the choices we've made as a society reflect the incredible confidence we have in the idea that a better future is possible. We've taken incredible resources and equipped some really smart people with some great gleaming shining tools and asked them to build things that do everything from let us connect to people across the world in ways that reflect our creativity and our ingenuity all the way to some of the less visible stuff, the things that build logistic supply chains that get us a, a fidget spinner made in Taiwan to deliver to the US shores and into my hands 30 minutes after I click buy on a website. This is a pretty incredible start to a future ahead. But you asked Bill how we as philanthropists and foundations think about the question and there's a flip side to that coin. Even as we've equipped some really smart people with these great tools, we've taken another set of people, social change makers. And we've asked them to address some really fundamental and immediate problems. Hunger, climate change, the lack of access to education and healthcare. And unfortunately, we haven't given them access to the same sets of tools. We've given them plastic shovels and plastic cameras, the kinds of things you build sandcastles with. 
and ask them to build the institutions that create equity in the world. This is a fundamental and deep challenge, but it's one that we can address quite easily. And the way that we think about addressing that is bringing technology into the philanthropic sector and asking institutions like foundations that have been for so long asked to hold public capital and use it for public good and say, let's add to that toolkit that they have. Let's bring technological expertise. Let's bring an enthusiasm and excitement about what technology can create in the world. And let's pair it with the passion of incredible change makers to say we can bring the value of deep supply and logistics chains to individuals who are working on delivering healthcare to rural last mile communities. We can bring the capacity of social networks and learning agents and conversational protocols to agents that can help people when they're experiencing some of the greatest mental trials they might feel in their life, to have a, a place they can go to talk through some of the things that they have gone through and to be triaged and to be supported and cared for. So if this is possible, then there's also an impatience. And it's an impatience I learned as an engineer at Illinois to say, if we know that we can design products that can actually make the world more equitable, more sustainable, more thriving place, then why aren't we doing it now? And that's where the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation sits, is to say, let's enable that kind of action in pursuit of a better future. That's great, thank you. And, and that, that passion and that impatience that you describe, we certainly still see it around here these days. So that's, that certainly resonates with us. But it also strikes me in your description there that um, these are big, these are big organizations and fields and areas that you are in the business of influencing, right? Whether it is on the technology side or on the civil society and nonprofit side, they're used to doing certain, most things in certain ways, right? So as a relatively new foundation, I know y'all haven't been um, up and running for that long. Um, passion and impatience are important, but what else goes into the how of how the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation expects to do its work and is doing its work so far? It's a great question. We start from the fundamental conception that it's not necessarily the wrong hands that are shaping our shared future but we do think it's not enough of them. And what I mean by that is this, we have had technology companies and given them a great deal of independence in making decisions about the kind of products that we're gonna build for the future. And I think that's a great thing. It's led to some incredible ingenuity and innovation. But we're now stepping forward to say, when these decisions are no longer about a single website, a single product, a single platform, but affect our shared humanity, we now need to bring the voice of the civil sector to the table. So you're right in acknowledging that these institutions are large and they have a lot of inertia, but that doesn't mean that we can't create a more inclusive conversation to make these decisions. We do it in a number of ways. The first is we've built an internal technology capacity, a robust set of engineers that sit inside of a philanthropic institution that can work directly in partnership with our nonprofit partners. Those large organizations that are doing things like in the field of climate change, trying to aggregate geospatial intelligence and on the ground people reporting to build a better, more granular view of how climate change is affecting vulnerable populations. With organizations like that, we've stepped in to support the creation of global data labs, where they're not only becoming curators and aggregators of these data assets, but they're also sharing the information and insights they're getting from this work with the field at large. But this work, again, doesn't happen in isolation. It's not just philanthropies working with nonprofits. 
But we need technology companies at that table as well, and we need academic institutions. Technology companies stepping in and opening up access to some of their APIs, allowing some of their tools to be used in ways that maybe were never envisioned by the creators of those tools, but have been hacked by social innovators to actually provide deep support for the kinds of change making we need to do. And universities as well, not just as um, fertile grounds for thinking about new applications, but also as places where we're tra training a new generation of leaders who can bring those technical skills and match them against real world problems as they come out of school. What are the opportunities for universities in particular? Um, what should we be looking at? What should we be looking for? What should we be paying attention to? Yeah, you know, I start from just thinking about my own experience. And I mentioned earlier in the interview that I had really a set of formative experiences at the University of Illinois and at the Granger College of Engineering. And what I meant by that was I saw very clearly not just how a technology education trained me to go find a job in technology, but really allowed me to understand large-scale problems and break them down into constituent parts. I was able to apply that same framework to my work in law and in policy and now in philanthropy. Universities play an incredibly important role, not just in teaching skills, but in teaching creative frameworks for how to think about addressing problems at scale. So I start from there, that universities, universities really are the place where we can train generations of decision makers to understand the contours of how technology works, certainly, but also how to apply these new and innovative approaches to large-scale problems. Universities also have a role in making sure that as we're training young leaders, we're also giving them a grounding, not just in hard sciences or in the disciplines of building technologies, but also in ethics in a socially grounded framework that understands how these products we build and the ways in which we build them promote possibly more justice and equity in the world. So as educational institutions, universities are right at the heart of the transformation that's coming, but there's more that can be done. There are questions now of how research that's happening inside of universities can be applied to social challenges, even in those formative moments. So much of the work that came out of the University of Illinois, for example, that was later commercialized, was built first as trying to solve a social problem, the World Wide Web and NCSA Mosaic, as a way of taking academic resources that were sitting on disparate servers and making them accessible to researchers, which then, of course, led to an incredible transformation in human communication. So one of the things that we think and care a lot about is how do we ensure that faculty are supported in identifying research projects and proposals that have dual purposes, both engaging and advancing the frontier of the field of knowledge, but also along the way using social use cases as a way to validate hypotheses and to build products that might support them. And finally, we think a lot about how faculty, this incredible resource of technological knowledge that have enjoyed a deep partnership with the technology industry, spending time both in their labs and sometimes working inside of corporate R&D or inside of companies, might have the same privilege and experience of doing the same work with social change organizations, of being able to spend a sabbatical or a secondment, or even stepping out of academia temporarily to work inside of a large organization that might be using the newest and most emergent frontiers of algorithmic machine learning to directly deal with problems like human trafficking or the misallocation of resources or wildlife poaching either in the oceans or on land. Um, 
And we'd love to partner with universities to think about how philanthropy might provide both financial support, but also structural and tangible connections between faculty and the kinds of organizations that are working on similar problems. And, and do you have any cases or examples or best practices that you see in that area at this point? Mm -hmm. We're seeing a transformation, I think, across academic faculties at all of the great institutions in America and across the world. I can give you a few point examples. Um, certainly at MIT, where we support a program called the Social and Ethical Resources in Computing, we're seeing the creation of new case studies and cross-curricular programs that bring questions of ethics and philosophy right into the heart of questions of how we code. At Illinois, I've seen student groups like ACM um, and Women in Computer Science building projects that display exactly how the implicit biases that might go into shaping programs actually lead to long-term effects and outcomes on the other side. And I understand that faculty are beginning to put together clinical programs where students in a computer science discipline are no longer just sitting down to do their machine lab problems on something that might be as kind of uh, abstract as a better search algorithm. And instead are being given real world use cases where they're saying, let's actually understand how those algorithms might apply to a question like tracking poaching shipping vessels. So figuring out where, ways that we can continue to tie together the advancement of the academic discipline with their real world use cases that address meaningful problems creates both instant experiences, but it also continues to drive the narrative that these technologies primary and best use is to advance human interests at large. Which is this tech for good concept that I've heard you, you talk about, which if I understand it and as I understand it, um, doesn't just apply in your interactions with the university or in your uh, uh, vision for how students may approach and come to understand these issues, but tech, tech for good is much broader for that, much broader than that as well. So talk a little bit about what you mean by that attitude, um, more broadly speaking, at all of the foundations, with all of the foundations, um, enterprises and, and opportunities that you're looking at. Sure. So my passion in this space starts from a fundamental question what would our digitally enabled future look like if we started with a totally different agenda? Instead of thinking about product development, we thought about social development. Instead of profit increases, we thought about equity increases. Instead of commercial potential, we thought about human potential. If we were able to reorient the way that we create technology, then we'd be in a place where we could look at technology innovation through the lens of people's lives. And I am super excited to share with you that I think the most innovative tech out there is actually the stuff we're not hearing about in the news just yet. And I think it's the kind of work that's gonna transform our world. So as I said, you know, some of this is not happening in the traditional tech industry. It's not happening with, not with traditional actors. It's instead a new generation of public interest technologists. I think of examples like the International Waukeshaan AI Alliance. This is an organization that is bringing together pretty much cutting edge natural language processing algorithms and an understanding of how we map languages across multiple domains to not just translate a solved or a, solved, a problem that's being solved between say an English, a Spanish and a French, but to apply that same methodology to dying and extinct languages of indigenous peoples across the world. Now, 
I share this with you, not just because it's an interesting application of a technology, but because of what it means for people's whose entire languages have been stripped away, where they might only have 50 or 100 native speakers left, to not just be able to capture them on tapes or to document them for future generations, but to build living models that capture how people communicated through thousands of years of human history and to make them accessible to an entirely new generation of people so that they can understand how it maps to their existing languages. I think of technologies like the ones being used by groups like IC Change, a small organization that is focused on the idea that climate change, as scary and big of a problem as it seems, is one that's best addressed at an individual and a community level. And it allows people to document how climate change is affecting them. When on their streets, when it rains heavily, floods are backing up public sewers or drains or are creating issues with rivers overflowing their levees and allows individuals to report those events using their own cell phones and then has a robust AI infrastructure behind it that pulls all of those data, data pieces together and then creates useful policy recommendations for local city governments to address. These aren't the big romantic pieces that you might see on the cover of a major commercial magazine. But for the people that they're affecting, they're transforming not just how they use technology, but how they interact with power structures, how they interact with the effects of climate change, how they affect um, their own vulnerability in the faces of transformation in the world around them. Now, these are pretty small examples that I've shared with you, but there are myriad of them, right? And they are happening all across the world in pockets of innovation where students from colleges like the one that we're speaking about today are going out and supporting communities together, bringing technical skills in conjunction with an interest in making a better future. This to me is tech for good. It's applying the same skills and the same pieces of knowledge that we've applied to build all kinds of shiny things and bringing it right back down to the level of individuals and helping them live their best human lives. And, and, and that really opens a different view for me and I suspect for others who um, might be listening that often, at least when I hear issues of equity discussed, they're discussed as issues of economic um, opportunity um, or as issues of things that have affect infrastructure and communities and neighborhoods in different ways. Whereas with this Waukesha um, uh, language project that you described um, and the general description you get, gave, it's about a lot more than that. It is, it is not simply economic opportunity. It is, it is human dignity. It is our experience in the world. I, you know, I am, I started off this conversation with how optimistic I am. And I will tell you, I think, I think of technologists and engineers as the ones who not just hold our products and our machines and our technologies, but they also hold on to the direction our culture, our stories, our songs, our dreams will go, right? In many ways, we are all becoming architects of a shared future. And we have to do that together. Absolutely. So, and, and these are democratizing forces across all of those, all of those different categories of human endeavor, I think I'm hearing you say. And it's essential that we put a fine point on the idea that technology can be a democratizing force. 
but that requires an intentionality. And it comes to this second part of our story. It's not just that the potential exists, but that we need to come together in a shared intention to say, if we decide to continue to allocate so many incredible social resources to the creation of technologies, how do we ensure that the technologies being built are the ones that actually serve all of us? And there, I think a new conversation emerges. I think we've all seen the existing discussions between technology companies and the regulators that are trying to, to control or restrict or limit that are trying to put policy around them. And as usual, I say those two participants in the conversation are absolutely essential, but they can't be the only ones in the conversation. So I'll ask again, where are the voices of students who are innovating, of faculty who are building kind of the frontier of what's possible and of civil society and of the individuals who are being affected by these technologies? And it brings us to a conversation about technology and equity that's grounded in science but requires new social structures and institutions. I'll give you one example. Um, I'm fascinated by questions of data equity. We are creating data in all of our behaviors, our activities, our actions. That data is being collected by institutions, often data intermediaries or technology companies. Well, we're moving into a world and a future where it may be the case that we need a new conception entirely of data. Is it a matter of privacy? Is it a property right? Is it a thing that I own and I transfer? Or do we need a new social conception of the interests of the individual and what that data represents to them? These are conversations that where in history they might've traditionally been in the, in the uh, school of law or they might've been for government policymakers. But now the technological complexity of what we're talking about means that we need to create leaders who both understand the technology and are capable of addressing the legal, societal, and ethical questions that are gonna come out of it. And I think when we think about tech and equity, that's gonna be a really essential part of our public conversation going forward. And, and it, in other conversations, I've heard you mention this data and society initiative that you've launched yet more recently, as I understand it, um, which much must play a role in what you were just saying. So share a little bit about that, if you could, and um, why that's important on tackling those that that sort of paradigm sh paradigm shift that you were just describing, and the other paradigm shifts that must well go with. AI and data and how we're currently thinking about it in the world. Absolutely. Our data and society initiative reflects a fundamental hypothesis that in order for philanthropy to be effective in conversations about technology, we need to first build an internal competency and expertise in delivering not just policy around tech, but the actual products and use of it. And so what we've done is in a, in a very novel maneuver, we've gone out and merged with another foundation, a foundation that was created by a technology company to help nonprofits use technology products and services. This is the first philanthropic merger of this size that we've really seen in American history in about the last 75 years. And again, underscores our institutional view on building an entirely new playbook for how we operate in the space. But with this merger, we brought on the core of a team that we intend to grow that essentially serves as both technology and strategy advisor to our significant partners in the nonprofit space. It means that we can actually build an internal competency that takes an organization that we work with from being able to identify their data assets, even when they might be quite messy or noisy, 
to clean and realign those data assets into a workable environment, and then to provide a menu of options in how they might segment, serve, analyze, and use that data to directly drive their strategy. This is not traditionally the work of philanthropy. And in this, I think we are really exploring a new frontier of what's possible. I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but to think of institutions like foundations, not just as pools of capital, but really as holders of public trust that are adaptable to be able to deliver what's most needed in the world right now. And as we've learned today, as nonprofits go out to solve these problems, one of the big things they need most is direct access to a technological capacity that supports them in their ability to drive large-scale transformation. So it is not white papers and podium speeches and policy recommendations anymore. There is an explicit part of your team that is working directly with nonprofits and, and, and civil society on the nuts and bolts of the engineering and the computer science of issues surrounding AI and data. That's exactly right. To borrow from the great Martin Luther King Jr., we are facing the fierce urgency of now. And it's no longer a time and space to think about what future policy should look like. We need to get these tools in the hands of people that are addressing our greatest challenges as quickly as possible. What an optimistic perspective to put on it, as you promised, you know, when you were describing yourself that way. And, you know, I hope on my best days, I'm, I'm optimistic in that way about technology and about our future as well. But um, I get a little wobbly when we think about AI sometimes. And I, I, I think that's a relatively common experience for people who are looking at, at, at these issues. There's all of that promise, but there are pitfalls that, that go with it as well. The conversation that we focus on is not just how to build more ethical AI, but how to build a more ethical society that's guided and served by AI and technology. And in that frame, what it leads us to is a couple of intuitions and hypotheses. The first is that the problems we're facing with early implementations of AI today around racial bias, around um, accountability and transparency, around explainability and auditability, these will not be problems that we will simply solve, put away and move on from. These are fundamental questions that should be asked every time we deploy a new iteration of these technologies. And they should be core to the development and production, the direction that we take with AI. If that's the case, then it strikes me that what we should be investing in is not just to take the conversations we're having today to their logical conclusions, but also learning from them and building a cadre of professionals whose role can be to continue to serve, to support, and when necessary, to regulate and police AI. We want to append the whole process. We don't want to think about these questions as obstacles that prevent the creation of new AI. Instead, we think they're absolutely essential additive building blocks that we need to build into the process. We partnered with Arvind Krishna, a fellow alum of the Granger College of Engineering, to launch something called the Global AI Action Alliance at the World Economic Forum that brings together hundreds of participants leading technology companies, leading social activists, academics, and engineers to advise a new frame for how we might think about open source ethical creation of technology. But that's just one part of it. On an ongoing basis, we also are curious how the development of AI will be informed, not just by technologists or ethicists, but by users and consumers. 
how do we make sure that vulnerable populations across the world are being heard when they talk about the implicit unexpected consequences that the deployment of these systems are creating? And there again, I think both philanthropy and academia have a role in making sure not just that we're listening, but that we're providing amplification and microphones to make sure those populations are being heard everywhere. And, and that define, defined the questions that, that we face really well. Um, help me understand, help us all understand um, how we operationalize some of that, right? You talked about wanting these issues and these considerations that you've described built into all development of these sorts of tools and opportunities on an ongoing basis. Um, that, that's a tall order. Yeah, well, luckily, this by no means is something that we're trying to do alone, right? <laughs> so let's reconceptualize the space. I think we know that institutions across the spectrum are recognizing not just the need to do this for commercial purposes. We've seen how Amazon and Microsoft and others with facial recognition have seen the blowback that comes from consumers when they build bias into their systems. And so they will always certainly feel that pressure of commercial reasons to build more ethical systems. But this isn't really a question about technology. This is a question about fundamental reconceptualization of stakeholder participation. So tech companies are already coming to the table and they're realizing that the ways in which they build products need to be designed for long-term sustainability, need to be designed to support and lift up the populations they're serving. Government regulators, I think, are realizing that they need to upskill their own policies and programs to understand what the kinds of issues are that technology is creating and here too, we're playing a role. We're launching a new program to help freshman congressmen really get a familiarity with and understand the nuance and language of technology at scale, particularly at the emergent frontier. We think there's probably a space for ongoing government intervention, not necessarily through regulation, but through support, through the allocation of research and development dollars, through participation with academia and defining new research programs. And then I think we will continue to see an incredible popular grassroots movements, movement that asks for technology creators, users, de deployers and distributors to be held to a high standard to ensure that when they're making decisions about pushing this out, that there's real public accountability. The mechanisms of that are happening today. There are things like creating new audit mechanisms and institutions for AI algorithms. It's creating open source technologies so that even as we're deploying these algorithms, people know what's behind them. They can look under the hood and understand how they work. And um, I think we're seeing the creation of new products in the space that aren't coming out of the traditional tech players. And while that's still quite nascent, that's a great hope of mine that we began to see what you know 20 years ago or 50 years ago was considered the hobbyist hacker community. And I think we are just beginning to see that happen in the world of AI as well and seeing some pretty incredible new development in the space. Right. I'm struck by the fact that 70 odd years ago, to even know that there were supercomputers at the University of Illinois required a top secret nuclear clearance. And that was 70 years ago. And 50 years ago, I could walk into the Beckman lab where we had built an immersive 3D environment called the Cube and be able to use Cray supercomputers, some of the kind of most advanced computers of the time. And today that the average college student sitting in their dorm can begin to use building blocks around AI to put together new algorithms and machine learning to come up with uses we haven't even thought of yet. So you, you said earlier, and I, I absolutely agree, I'm quite an optimistic and hopeful person, but it's these kinds of 
potential in development give me that hope that at the end of the day, the answer to this problem doesn't rest with one institution or one individual or even one sector. It's the fact that democratized access to these technologies means that we can all lend a hand in shaping this future. That's a very broad spectrum of issues that, that you all are, are looking at. Um, how do you go about it and why do you go about it that way? This is a, maybe an overused phrase, but I think never more applicable in human history than now. The idea that we sit at a moment of transformation, not just individually, not just in the institutions we've created, but in some pretty fundamental questions of our society. If we're gonna deploy these technologies at scale in ways that transform our economic preconceptions of how things work, our political, our social, our cultural ideas of how we interrelate with each other, because technologies can create some incredible new opportunities and surpluses for us. Then we have to start from fundamental questions about what we value as a society. And traditionally, the role of doing that has fallen in two places. First, to our academics, particularly those who think about philosophy and ethics and the human sciences, and to philanthropists and civil society as the ones who attempt both to protect the most vulnerable and to inspire that best possible future. Now, those are quite lofty principles that I've just shared with you. But if we translate that into the moment we live in today, it's very clear that we're on a path as a society that gives us a fork in the road. One of those paths lead us to a world where technologies drive the aggregation of capital, of opportunity, of power into the hands of the few. And another where we open up the real possibilities of these technologies to create a truly inspirational and better future for everyone. Our foundation is one of many, but I think that as a sector and really as a society at large, we're gonna be forced with that choice in the very near future. And I feel quite confident that we're gonna make the right one. But maybe in order to do that, we need to do some prep work. That's the frame in which I think about what the Patrick J. McCormick Foundation does today, is to go out and test those hypotheses to ensure that technology really can support better solutions to major challenges that the voice of civil society participating with technology companies and governments can lead to a more robust conversation about how we wanna make shared decisions about the future of tech. And that at the end of the day, institutions like universities, like foundations and civil society put at the very front of our decision-making the interests of the most vulnerable and the interests of our shared good. What, what a nice point to leave it at. Vilasadar, I appreciate you taking the time with us today. It's always exciting to hear um, just what impact and just what broad and, and, and both promising and crucial issues um, folks that have been touched and have touched the Granger College of Engineering are making out of the world. So I really appreciate you spending this time today with us to describe the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation and your work and your team's work there. Bill, thanks so much for this incredible opportunity. And I'm excited not just to share some of our work, but to continue to track and follow the incredible work of alums and current students and faculty members at the Granger College. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illinois Innovators. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, or become involved in our community by using the hashtag Illinois Innovators.